All right, let's take our Bibles and turn <coughs> to Revelation chapter 13. And we can finish up from last week and then get into chapter 14 this morning. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your word, for the gift of your Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. Thank you that you have revealed so much and that you have given us more than enough reason to take you at your word. We're grateful for your faithfulness in the past. We're grateful for your faithfulness in the present. And that gives us great hope and courage and confidence to trust in your faithfulness in the future. And so help us to see you this morning, that we may know you aright, that we may then worship you aright and obey you aright. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were looking at chapter 13, and we saw that we, there's Satan, the dragon, and he then is joined by two men. One, the beast from the sea, that is known as the beast or the Antichrist. And then there was a second that arose, the beast from the earth, which is who is going to be known as the false prophet. So Satan has formed his own mimicry of the Holy Trinity, except Satan's is anything but. And so Satan was thrown out of heaven for what reason? Why, why did Satan get tossed? Oh, come on, that's an easy one. He wants to be like God. You were going to say that, weren't you, Ben? Good job. All right, so the fact is, Satan wants to be like the Most High. And then he brings in a, someone who looks a lot like him. Remember the dragon has got seven heads, he's got ten horns, he's got diadems on his seven heads, and then this other beast that arises out has got seven heads and ten horns. His diadems are on the horns rather than the heads, so, but he looks a lot like the dragon. He looks a lot like Satan because he's got Satan's agenda. That's what he is lockstep with where Satan wants to go. And the beast has got a horn that received a wound. He appeared as if it he was slain, and this wound was healed. And so who is he mimicking? He's mimicking Jesus. And then you have the beast from the earth who comes out. He's got two horns like a lamb, except he's got a mouth like a dragon. And his job is to bring attention to the beast. He causes an image to be made of the beast. And that image is given breath. And he focuses the attention over to the beast. Who's he acting like? He's acting like the Holy Spirit because does the Holy Spirit attract attention to himself? No, he doesn't. It's all about the Father. It's all about the Son. And so here you have Satan mimicking that which God is. And so let's finish up chapter 13. 
I believe last week, we got down to about, well, let's just, uh, we'll just start in 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Now, again, in this chapter, that phrase keeps coming up, whose fatal wound was healed. He keeps pounding on that drum in order to get this idea through that um, there is something that's special about him. And because it's something that's special, then those who dwell on the earth, and again, that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, who are they? They're unbelievers. Every time you see that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, those who live on the earth, that is those who are unbelievers. And so he, the, the false prophet is again causing people, encouraging people to worship this beast whose fatal wound was healed. Now again, when you talk about combating an idea, how do you combat an idea? With another idea. And what is Satan's MO? What, what is he at heart? He's a liar, he's a murderer, he's a thief. And most importantly, and especially now for these people in this time, what else is he? He is a, good job, he is a deceiver. And again, if you're going to deceive, what's the best way to, 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 to pawn off a lie? Do, that's right, you make it look like the truth. Now, and again, here's the thing with deception. And we need to understand this, all right? We need to understand this in dealing with ourselves. We need to understand it in dealing with others that we love. When a person is deceived, do they know they're deceived? No. They think that what they believe, what they understand, is the truth. That's why, by the way, why is it so hard to evangelize somebody who's religious? There's a lot of religious people on this planet who are going to end up in hell because what they sincerely believe to be true is, in fact, a lie. And so here again, this whole thing is couched in deception. Gunner.
Absolutely. And so the comment is uh, Islam, people who are adherents to Islam, believe that their theology is correct, that it's accurate. Alan did a lot of teaching on Islam, oh, probably about, what, five years ago? It's been a while. But they have their own, and they incorporate elements of Christianity into their theology. So if you go to talk to, an, uh, to a Muslim about Jesus, they're going to know who Jesus is. At least they're going to have their understanding of who Jesus is, right? Jesus cannot be the son of God because otherwise Muhammad's got a problem. And so they take those things and they twist them. But again, don't, uh, you know, when somebody has sincerely held beliefs, the sincerity does not make them true. At one point in time, people sincerely believed that the earth was flat. That's why you didn't see people sailing off into the ocean because they were convinced that at some point they were going to drop off the edge and that was going to be it. And so, now, is that true? No, it's not true. People who have vertigo sincerely believe that down is up. And is that true? No. And so for a pilot to believe his gut, when his gut is telling him the wrong information, what is likely going to be the outcome of his flight? He's going to put it into the ground. And so, again, sincerity has nothing to do with, with truthfulness. And he performs great signs, verse 13, so that it even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Now, fire coming down to the earth, who was just doing that for three and a half years? The two witnesses that were in Jerusalem. So again, he's mimicking. He's, he's saying, basically, look, I can have this power as well. And so because I can have this power, you should be worshiping me. Ultimately, that is exactly what all this is about. This is about capturing the hearts of the unredeemed. The worship that should be going to God is going to the dragon and the beast. Verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. Now, there's a phrase in there, it was given to him. Now, ultimately, who is giving this authority? Is it Satan? Who is it? It's God who's doing this. In, 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 uh, we looked last week at um, 1 Thessalonians 2, I believe it was, where it talks about God ultimately will send a deluding influence 
And so these people want to go down the wrong road, and God's going to help them along. And so again, they're deceived. They believe something to be true that in fact is not. So now we have this image of the beast. Now when you talk about making an image of the beast, does that bring anything to mind? Think long time ago. Pardon me? The golden calf? I wasn't going back quite that far. <laughs> you can go back. Yeah, okay. You can go all the way. I'm thinking specifically of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar makes this huge image. And whenever you heard the song of the flute and the lyre and the psaltery and all those things, all those musical instruments, what were you supposed to do? Fall down and worship that image. And in fact, if you didn't fall down and worship the image, what happened to you? You were to be killed. This is the same thing that's happening here. They make an image of the beast, and if you don't fall down and worship the image of the beast, you get killed. That's the quick method. Later down here, we're going to find that, well, let's just keep reading. Verse 15, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And we'll stop there for just a second. Who else has a mark on their forehead? At this point in time in this book. Okay, the 144,000 have a mark on their forehead. They're identified. Who else has, has a mark? All the believers. Because remember, uh, that was back, I think, in chapter 6. Nine, chapter nine. This is the the locusts that are coming out of the bottomless pit. Remember the ones that sting you and you want to die but you can't. They were limited. Verse four. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth nor any green thing, which again gives you the idea that they are not actually physical what locusts, because what do locusts eat? Green grass, right? They eat vegetation. So these are told, no, 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 you don't do that. Not the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So this is one. Those who are redeemed are marked by God. God knows who they are. Gunner? The 104, because it's all of those who are redeemed who are being protected here from that. Because again, what's the purpose of this judgment? What's happening with this judgment? Who's it directed to? It's directed to the unbeliever. And so again, 
God's not pouring his wrath out on those who are his own. There's no reason for God to be pouring wrath out. That wrath has already been satisfied by Christ. So there's no reason for them to be enduring that. And so here you have, God has marked his. So what does Satan do? Well, he's going to mark his. And his is going to be something that is visible, or at least detectable. Let's put it that way. Now, how do we know that it's going to be something that's detectable? Okay, let's do the next verse, and that'll probably give, give us a good hint there. Back to chapter 14, or 13. Verse 17, and he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. So again, whether that's something that's visible on the forehead so that when you go to the grocery store, you walk in there and someone goes, oh, you're there. You can buy whatever it is that you're wanting to have here. So either it's something that is visible or it's something that can be readily detectable so that you can be identified. So if you're a believer in Christ, your choices here are going to be pretty much immediate execution for not bowing down to the beast, to his image, or you get starved out. You're not able to buy, you're not able to sell. We, it, the, it is his name. The question is, do we know what the mark of God is? And it is his name. Now, whether or not that's visible, probably not. Probably not visible to each other. Absolutely known to God. And the reason that I say probably not is because if you walk into the grocery store, it doesn't matter if you have the mark of the beast. Oh, wait a minute, you're one of those. Okay, verse 18. Here's one where, again, we get a lot of ink spilt on this verse. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Now, I am told that uh, there is a, a way to, where you have numbers that are assigned to letters so that somehow you could go through and you could come up, you could add up the, the different values and come up with a number. Now, people have been working on this one probably since this book was published 2000 year, almost 2,000 years ago. Now, here's the issue with calculating the number of this man. First, you have to have a piece of, inf actually, you have to have two pieces of information. You have to have two pieces of information. What are they? Just think about it for a second. What are they? You have to know the name. And you have to know the formula. So, people have been working on this one for a long, long, long time. And all kinds of things have been suggested. What's the problem? 
Number one, which formula are you going to use because which language are you going to use? People talk about, okay, well, the beast is going to come from Russia. Okay, which alphabet are you going to use? Are you going to use the Cyrillic alphabet that his name would actually be written in because he's from Russia? Or are you going to use English? Are you going to use Portuguese? Are you going to use Arabic? Portuguese is a bad example because Portuguese and English very similar when it comes to the, to the letters in the alphabet. But you put Cyrillic, Arabic, and uh, Romantic or whatever other that term is. What's the term that's used for, the, for ours? There, there's a term and now it's escaping me. Which one do you use? And how do we identify this guy ahead of time? Anybody in here know for a certainty who the Antichrist is? I'm not seeing anybody jumping up and down and going, I do, I do, I do. And why not? Well, so the people who are going to have understanding are going to be who? Those people who are alive at the time and who have the Spirit of God. So, don't worry about it. It's like, who wrote the book of Hebrews? No. There's one vote. There are others that are just as likely. In fact, the writer of Hebrews makes great pains to not identify himself. Do we need to know who wrote the book of Hebrews? If we needed to know, what would we have? We'd have his name. Right? So again, things that aren't given, don't worry about them. Nobody in this room who's a believer is going to have to worry about this issue. Okay? Those who don't know Christ, they'd better learn. Sir? No. The question is, do I believe that there will be anybody in heaven who has the mark of the beast? That answer is no. There will not be anybody. That is correct. We're going to get into that in a couple of minutes because that's not, my, that's not my statement. That's God's. Those who do not. So the question is, who's going to be saved at this time? Those who choose to endure the persecution of Christ rather than enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Because God, again, so here's the idea. So the question is, why would people not take the mark of the beast if at that point they're not Christians? Because God has called those who are going to be redeemed. And those who are called are going to come.
And so that is a place where God is going to supernaturally, because it's just as true for you and me. We didn't come to Christ because we woke up and realized we could have a V8. We were called before the foundation of the world. And God rescued us even in spite of ourselves. And so God's going to do the same thing for them. There's going to come a time where people make their choice. And they're going to have to live with, their, with the consequences of their choice. That's chapter 14. Good questions. Okay. Questions to this point. Gunner. No, no, people don't have his mark now. And so people who die unredeemed now, the question was, uh, do people have to have the mark of the beast or worship his image in order to end up in hell? No, okay, so the question is, do you have to do both? No, that image does not yet exist. And yet there are millions today, billions today, who are going to die in their sin and go to end up in hell, and they've never even heard of the beast, they've never seen his image, they've never gotten his mark. What's happening here in this period of time is you're having the line drawn. And it's going to be drawn in a much more uh, emphatic way than it is in our day. And that, that mark, <coughs> excuse me, you have those who have the mark of God, who have the mark of Christ, they're redeemed. And then you're going to end up with those who, choose, who, who come back and say, we understand who God is, and we reject him. We will not have this man to rule over us. We're going with this guy. And they receive his mark, and what happens, again, we're going to run into this here in chapter 14. If you take the mark of the beast, you're damned period, no exception, because that is, that is the final, you know, that, that, is that your final answer? Yeah, it is. I've cast my lot with him against God, and there's consequences. In fact, let's just start into that. So now here, Chapters 12 and 13, we've met all of these, these people, these players, and now we've got Satan. Satan's got his management team. I'm sorry? Well, I'm sorry, I thought somebody said something. Satan's got his management team in place. Him, the beast, the false prophet, and they are active. They are at this, you know, in the second half of the tribulation, they are persecuting believers. They are, they've been given power and authority to fight against and overcome the saints. And remember, when we, when, we, when we looked at that, the idea of being able to overcome them means he's able to kill them. But what can he not do? He cannot defeat their faith. He cannot overcome that. He can kill their body. That's it. He can't make them say uncle. He cannot make them recant. 
He doesn't have the ability to do that. And by the way, why is it that those who are redeemed in this time are going to be able to overcome and to persevere? God enables them. It's, God's grace is sufficient, right? It's sufficient. And not for you to just squeak by by the hair of your chinny chin chin. What does Romans 8 say? We overwhelmingly conquer. By the blood of the Lamb. And so again, for these people, can you see why God is giving this information to John so that John can write it down. You and I look at this as something that is still over here in the future. There's going to come a day when there's going to be people who are going through this in real time. And what are they going to be able to do? I can look, I can see, and I know that God wins and that he's going to get me through. I may die. I may seal my testimony with blood, but I'm going to be rescued at the end of that. Let's get into chapter 14 because a lot of this is going to start to be clear. Verse four, chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked. And so now, every time that we see that, then I looked, that's a break from what's been happening before. Now, I look, and behold... The lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now we know who's the, who the redeemed. These guys, oh yeah, they've got a mark, but it's God's mark. The lamb is standing on Mount Zion. Now, where is the lamb going to stand when he returns? Where's his foot going to touch down? On the Mount of Olives. The idea here in seeing the Lamb standing on the Mount Zion with his 144,000 is Jesus physically on the earth at this moment, at this moment in time. No. He hasn't returned yet. So why is he with them? He's always with them. Exactly. Matthew 28, 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That one's just as appropriate for us as it is for these people at this time. Christ is with them. They're not going through this on their own. They're not going through this alone. Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now often, and, and again, um, I heard a voice. Now this one's not, de not declared to be a loud voice as it often is. And that term loud voice is the basis for what word that we have. Well, shout. We actually derive a word from the two Greek words used for loud voice. Loud, mega, voice, phone Bullhorn, megaphone. He hears a voice, and it's got musical, 
qualities to it. It's a harp. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So now you hear the, you have the lamb and you have these 144,000 witnesses. Now, if we go back, I believe it is chapter 7, we've met this remnant before. If you go back to chapter 7 and verses 4 to 8, we find that we've got these 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from 12 tribes. And you end up with 144,000. Now we're going to get some more information about who they are and their characteristics. Number one, they've got God's name on their, on their foreheads. They belong to him. There's 144,000 of them. Now back in chapter 7, there were 144,000 of them. We're well into the great tribulation. We're well into the second half of the tribulation at this point. The bold judgments are about to start and they're gonna go in rapid fire succession and they are going to be devastating, far more so than anything that's happened up to this point. Because everything that's happened up to this point has been judgment still mixed with mercy. These have not been, when we've looked at the seals and we've looked at the trumpets, those have not been full strength. Those are coming. And yet these 144,000, they're all still here. They haven't been killed. God is able to keep. Look, here's... Here's something that's easy for us. God knows the number of our days already, right? They're already written in his book before one of them came to be, Psalm 139. On the day of your death, on the day of my death, there will be nothing on this earth that can keep me alive. It's my day. Conversely, if God wants me alive, there's nothing on this earth that can kill me. And so I'm going to have every day that God has ordained for me. Every one of them. So I've trained myself out of when one of my kids does something to startle me. I don't know why they get such pleasure out of that. They don't do it often. I have trained myself out of the common phrase you just took a year off my life because they don't have the ability to do so. These are being protected. They're all still there. They've been purchased from the earth. They've been bought. What bought them? The blood of Christ. You have purchased men for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation with your blood back in chapter 4. Now, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women 
for they have kept themselves chaste. Now, we're going to have to stop here for a second. Women, number one, you're not the spawn of Satan. All right? That's not the point here. In fact, who made marriage? God did. When did God make marriage? Genesis 1, right? We've got the man and the woman. Who made sex? God did. Is there anything wrong with sex in and of itself? No. How do we know that? Because God made it and sex existed in the garden before sin. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, what was the command given to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Well, how does that happen? So again, the idea here is that there's nothing unholy about sex. There's nothing unholy about marriage. So the idea here is not that somehow you have to, in order to really be holy, in order to really please God, you have to be celibate. If that's the case, guys, since most everybody in this room is married, we're hosed. But that's not the case. How do you know that's not the case? God created it. What's, what, what's the first place you go to evaluate the character of a man for a position of leadership in God's church? What do you evaluate? You evaluate his marriage. What does his marriage tell you about the man's character. So again, there's nothing wrong with marriage. Now, that being said, this word here, kept, kept themselves chaste, is used 13 times in the New Testament. The other 12 times it's translated virgin. Now, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, talks about those who are single have an advantage in serving Christ. What's the advantage? They don't have the distraction of responsibilities, right? If you're married, you have incurred responsibilities and you've incurred them before God. I am responsible before God to take care of my wife. And that necessarily requires attention and effort. If I'm not married, I can take that attention and effort and put it solely into the service of God. That's what Paul's talking about. And so these are entirely dedicated, consecrated to God and to his service. And in fact, there's a hint to that. The last part of verse 4. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They don't have other distractions. They don't have 
other obligations. Their obligation is service to the Lamb. That's it. It is single-minded. It is laser focus. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now there's another term there, first fruits. What does that harken back to? In fact, it's interesting that he chooses this word to communicate this thought. What were first fruits? Okay. The, the idea of first fruits goes back to the Old Testament, and it's the idea that of that which God has blessed me with, I am taking a portion, and that portion is brought to God, and it is consecrated to God. It is given to Him for His use. Now, who got to use the first fruits? The priests did. That was one of the ways in which God provided for the priests because they didn't have a physical inheritance, right? And so again, this idea of first fruits, this is something that is consecrated wholly to God. If I'm bringing an offering to the field, whatever offering, any of the, grain, any of the field offerings I would bring, those first fruits went and it was given away. I don't get any benefit from that. That was something that was consecrated entirely to God. These people are, entire, are entirely consecrated to God. That's the idea here of first fruits. They're his. They've been bought. Now, where'd these guys come from? Okay. They come from Israel. Were these people saved prior to the tribulation? Were these people saved prior to the rapture of the church? Let's start there. Were they saved prior to the rapture of the church? That's an easy one. No, they're not. How do we know that? Because they're there, right? Church is gone. So, early on in this seven-year period of time, in the time of Jacob's trouble, God rescues and seals 144,000 Jews. Those are probably the first that he rescues. And they are dedicated to his service for the rest of their lives. Now these 144,000, they're going to go into the kingdom. They're going to survive this time because they've got the seal of God on their forehead. And they're going to survive and go into the millennial kingdom as men. They'll be part of the original occupants. They're going to be stakeholders in the millennial kingdom. And so God rescues them, and they're consecrated to his service. And no lie was found in their mouth. They're blameless. The idea here. They are evangelists for the Lamb. And all they're speaking is God's truth. In contrast to the, to the devil. Sam. You mentioned that That's a great question. So the question is, is there a dot to be connected here between these guys being the first fruits and first fruits representing 
another harvest? Yes, absolutely. Because what's the purpose? What's one of the purposes? There's two primary purposes for this period of time. One is the outpouring of God's wrath and the beginning of judgment on Satan and on rebellious men. What's the other? It's the redemption of Israel. That's why after you, when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, from there through the rest of the book, you don't hear any reference to the church. It's all about Israel. Now, there's a bunch of Gentiles getting saved too, but the primary thrust is Israel and the redemption thereof. So yes, there is absolutely a dot to be connected there. Again, and that's why, again, John is careful about the words he chooses. He's careful. And so we need to pay attention to, to the way he phrases things. Verse 6. Now, we're going to have three angels. So we've had the lamb and the witnesses. Now we get three angels. First one, verse 6, and I saw another angel, another again, allos, another of the same kind, flying in mid-heaven. Mid-heaven, we've seen this word before. What, what, what's the idea of mid-heaven? Yeah, it's like noontime. It's, the sun is up here. It gives you maximum exposure. So the idea here is that everybody is able to hear what this angel is saying. That's the idea here. He's up in the air so you can see him. And he's got a message for them to hear. So he's flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. To those who live on the earth, who are those? The unbelievers, so this is a message for them, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, so it's everybody, everywhere. All social classes, all nations, all ethnic groups, no one's excluded from being able to hear this. And he said in a loud voice, and yes, that is our, those two words, megaphone, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. So, in a nutshell, what is he telling these people? Keep in mind chapter 13. What's the message here? Who have they been worshiping? They've been worshiping the beast. The beast who has an image. Who had breath come into it. Forget the beast. Fear God. Worship him. Fear God and give him glory. Stop ascribing your worship and ascribing value to the enemy of God and instead give it to him. 
to whom it is rightly due. Because God's the one who made everything that you see. God's the one who made everything that you require for life. Don't give it to the beast. So here again, this is a hard line. You worship the beast or you worship God. That's it. Those are the choices. You want to escape judgment? You worship God. The hours come. It's here. It's at the doorstep. You don't have any more time. You don't have the ability to, well, I'm going to wait it out a little bit and see how this plays. You haven't got that anymore. It's now. Because he's immediately followed by another angel. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her, of her immorality. Now, we're going to get into Babylon the Great at length in chapter 18. This is the empire of Satan. It's, it has political attributes. It has economic attributes. It has religious attributes. The religious attribute, who's God under this system? Satan is. You worship the beast. You worship Satan. You worship the dragon. And that's fallen. Now, it's interesting here. This idea of she who has made all the nations drink, that's actually not the best translation of this. Because the idea is she has given to the nations to drink. She hasn't forced them. She hasn't squeezed their nose and poured it down their throat. She's given it to them. She's made it available to them. She's encouraged them to take this. So there's wine. And this wine is the idea of intoxication, seduction. You take on, um, you know, something. That, again, you're deceived. You take something to be true that's not. This word passion, you'll, you'll recognize it from another place. It's the word thumos. So a word that, would, that we might recognize, epithumia. Epithumia is, okay, Rick, you're nodding your head up and down. What's epithumia? Okay, lust. So you see it in James 4, right? What is the source of conflicts among you? You know, is it not your lusts, your strong desires? Now, that idea of a strong desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. I hope not, because it's one of the things that it talks about for one who wants to be a pastor. He who epithumias the office of overseer, he who desires the office of overseer, desires a good thing. So the idea is not just that, oh, whoa, wait a minute, it's, it's, it's a strong desire, it's a strong passion. That in and of itself is not a problem. Wherein, wherein, causes, wherein comes the problem? What is it that I'm epithumying for? That's where the problem comes in. And so here, 
It's the passion, it's the thumos of her immorality. The word immorality is porneia. What word do we get from porneia? Pornography. And so the idea here is, again, these are things that we're chasing after the things of the flesh. That is the characteristic of those who are the occupants and the residents of this culture. That's the second one. You worship the beast, you're drinking that wine. So, God's got wine for you too. Verse 9, then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, and this is going to answer the question from earlier, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So, you receive the mark, you've bought the consequences thereof. And that is eternal residency in the lake of fire. Now, a lot of you know, I was a fireman for 18 years. I still do fire investigations. I cannot fathom, I don't want to think, over the course of my career, I have listened to a person burn to death. I have spoken to those who listened to that very thing. And the way it was described was I heard this person screaming and then the screaming stopped. In hell, the screaming never stops. Ever. There's no respite, there's no break, there's no coffee break. It is day and night, forever and ever. Now we talked about this a little bit last Sunday in the main service. Brimstone is molten sulfur. You can go on YouTube and pull up a video of sulfur burning. It melts and it sticks. That's why the, the probably our best thing that we could compare that to is napalm. Napalm is jellied gasoline. So that the gasoline, when it's mixed with a couple of other things, and I won't tell you what they are, but it sticks to a surface and burns. That's what brimstone is. Forever and ever. Gunner? Sulfur. 
Okay. I didn't know that. He's talking about using sulfur uh, as a means of being able to test concrete. Um, nah, I'm not going to go there. That's a that's a rabbit trail. We'll we'll skip. If we have time next week, we'll talk a little bit. You know, all right. No, it's just it's almost ten, and we we've got too much to go. Um, it is interesting that naturally naturally occurring sulfur throughout most of the planet, the best you're going to get is about 40% pure. Now, there is a place in the planet where it's 96% pure. Take a guess at where that is. Sodom and Gomorrah. You go over to where Sodom and Gomorrah is, and you can go, and you, you can walk through, and you can find pellets of sulfur. And those pellets are about 96% pure. It's the only place in the world you can find it. Like that. Why? Yeah, because God destroyed those places by raining on them fire and brimstone. So, let's stop there. Um, you know, actually, we got just a couple minutes. We're going to take a couple minutes. We got a little bit of a late start. You've got a choice here. The people, those who dwell on the earth have got a choice. And it's not an unusual choice. When you talk about, remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus, the beggar, lying on the side of the road. You know, the dogs are coming and licking his wounds. And then you've got the rich man who has everything that he wants and more, right? Lazarus dies. He goes up into Abraham's bosom. Rich man dies, he goes to the place of the dead, and he is in torment. And he calls out to Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here so that he can dip his finger in water and, and, and give it to me because I am in torment. I'm in anguish. I'm being tortured. Can't do it. Great gulf fixed between you and us so that those from you can't come over here and those from us can't go to you. How does he refer to Lazarus and to the rich man in the parable? Lazarus, in his day, suffered. He's now being comforted. You had all your good things, now, you're being tormented. That, so again, when you look at, let's make a deal. Suffering now, because those who name the name of Christ in this period of time, you're not going to have people faking conversion in this time. Because you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hunted 
down for the name of Christ versus those, if I take the mark of the beast, I can go to the market. I can get what I need because it's about now. You take the mark of the beast and you take your immediate satisfaction, you have eternal damnation. You suffer now for the sake of the name and you enjoy all the blessings of heaven forever. And so again, and again, for our, for our culture, which is so steeped in instant gratification, right? Why is it that there are so many prescriptions for pain relief? Because pain is to be avoided. And that is going to be, and, that, and God puts it right in front of them. You take the mark of the beast, you've just bought eternal damnation. You take the name of Christ, you're going to suffer now. But there are blessings unspeakable for you later. Let's pray. Father, how terrifying it is to fall into the hand of the living God. Torment that I cannot even begin to fathom. Rightly deserved because they have rejected those who, who take the mark, those who continue to rebel against you and to stand in opposition to you, they warrant the judgment that they incur. And that judgment belonged to us. And how grateful we are that you have rescued us. And Lord Jesus, how grateful we are that you endured that wrath on my behalf, on our behalf. That wrath has been satisfied because it was poured out on you. And how can we do anything else but say thank you and to honor you with our lives and our devotion and our adoration forever? Those in heaven never get tired. They never grow weary of singing your praises. How we long for that day. And so, Lord, help us to begin now that we would be consumed with knowing you, with adoring you, with ascribing you praise that is rightfully yours and belongs to none other. Help us to worship you aright this morning as we come to sing, to hear your word spoken, to pray to you, and to hear your word exposited to us. 
thank you that you have rescued us. Help us to proclaim that salvation to an unbelieving and to a dying world. In Christ's name, amen.